Chapter 11 The Sacrament of the Holy Spirit And unite all of us to one another who become partakers of the one bread and cup in the communion of the Holy Spirit. Liturgy of St. Basil the Great 1. We have now reached the summit of the Eucharistic celebration. Everything has been said, everything has been remembered before the altar of God, thanksgiving has been offered for everything, and now the prayer through which the oblation, this sacrifice of praise, is accomplished, turns to the Father in supplication for the sending down of the Holy Spirit upon us and upon these gifts here offered. Again we offer unto thee this reasonable and bloodless worship, and ask thee, and pray thee, and supplicate thee, send down the Holy Spirit upon us, and upon these gifts here offered, and make this bread the precious body of thy Christ, and that which is in this cup the precious blood of thy Christ, making the change by thy Holy Spirit, that they may be for those who partake for the purification of soul, for the remission of sins, for the communion of the Holy Spirit, and not for the judgment or condemnation. But, precisely because we have reached this summit, we need to gather together everything that has led us to it, that we spoke of in the preceding chapters. For the very text of the liturgy cited above links the epiclesis, the invocation of the Holy Spirit, with the changing of the Eucharistic gifts into the body and blood of Christ. This link, however, as we already know, is variously interpreted. In the Western scholastic tradition as the prayer that contains the consecratory formula, and in the Orthodox East as the prayer that completes the entire Eucharistic ceremony, offering, thanksgiving, remembrance, as the fulfillment of the entire divine liturgy in the Eucharistic changing of the holy gifts. The Western doctrine gradually crept into the East and was partly accepted by it. I say partly because, on the one hand, the Orthodox East as a whole undoubtedly rejects the Western teaching on the words of institution as the cause of the change. On the other hand, it under-rejects it, and the prayer of the Epiclesis has come to be interpreted in the Orthodox East as well as a consecratory formula. The centuries-old dispute over the Epiclesis and its place in the liturgy was essentially transformed into a dispute over two moments of the change, separated from each other in the liturgy, not even by minutes, but by seconds. In all probability, this explains why, in contrast to the passions and emotions attended to the great dogmatic disputes of the patristic era, the question of the epiclesis, of the transformation of the holy gifts, and of the theology of the sacraments in general, did not arouse particular interest in the East. For, inasmuch as the reality of the change of the gifts was never questioned in the East or the West, and the Western approach to the sacraments inculcated itself into the life of the Eastern Church only gradually, the people of the Church somehow never took notice of it. Outwardly, both the rites and the prayers remained the same, the usual their own. Thus, when the de facto Western perception of the sacraments, and in the first place of the Eucharist, became dominant in our textbooks and crept into the Catechism, the overwhelming majority of the faithful including theologians and hierarchy, simply failed to perceive the change that had occurred. 2. 
I am convinced, however, that the time has come to recognize this change and to understand that we are speaking here not of secondary details, but of something infinitely essential for the church and for our Christian life. For the Orthodox, the basis for the interpretation of the Eucharist forever remains the words of St. Irenaeus of Lyons. Our teaching is in accordance with the Eucharist, and the Eucharist in turn confirms our teaching. Everything pertaining to the Eucharist pertains to the Church, and everything pertaining to the Church pertains to the Eucharist and is tested by this interdependence. Meanwhile, precisely this original interdependence proved to be somewhat ruptured by the diffusion of the new understanding of the sacraments that came into the Church after the break with the patristic tradition. In this doctrine, the Eucharist, which had been perceived in the ancient Church as the sacrament of unity, the sacrament of the ascension of the Church and her fulfillment at the table of the Lord in His kingdom, came to be perceived and defined as one of the means of the sanctification of the faithful. This is seen most clearly of all in the transmutation of partaking of communion from an act of the Church, of the assembly, from the fulfillment of our membership in the Church, the body of Christ, into a personal act of piety, and for the laity an exceptional act of that, regulated not by the Church but by the personal piety and option of the communicant himself. We continue to pray in the liturgy, and unite all of us to one another who become partakers of the one bread and cup in the communion of the Holy Spirit. But what constitutes this unity in our liturgies without communicants? At both the beginning and the end of the liturgy we pray, preserve the fullness of thy church. But what fullness are we talking about? And in this approach, what can be the meaning of the words that the Apostle Peter directs to us? You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's only people, that you may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2, 9. I will not repeat here everything said above about the other consequences for the church of this metamorphosis in the perception of the Eucharist. I think that enough has been said to understand that we are dealing here with great damage to and, hence, distortion of the liturgical tradition of the Church, her lex orundi. Consequently, it requires us more than ever to return to this tradition, to restore its genuine perspective and essence. 3. This leads us yet again to the multifaceted nature of the divine liturgy, for, as we have repeatedly affirmed, it is precisely in it, by and through its having many parts, that the Eucharist is accomplished. The liturgy, as a sacrament, begins with the preparation of the holy gifts and the assembly as the church. After the gathering follows the entrance and the proclamation of the word of God, and after that the offering, the placing of the Eucharistic gifts on the altar. After the kiss of peace, and the confession of faith, we begin the anaphora, the lifting up of the gifts in the prayer of thanksgiving and remembrance. The anaphora concludes with the epiclesis, in other words, the prayer that God will manifest the Holy Spirit, will show the bread and wine of our offering to be the body and blood of Christ, and make us worthy to partake of it. But Western scholasticism denies this multifaceted nature of the liturgy, the interdependence of all its elements, of all its rites, 
It does not enter into the theological interpretation of the Eucharist. It is not needed. For in the words of Dom Vonier, which we quoted earlier, the sacraments comprise a sui generis reality, fulfilled only by their institution by Christ and dependent on nothing else in the Church. What is the meaning of this dispute, this divergence? In order to answer this question, we must bear in mind that right up to its Western captivity, the Orthodox East never isolated the sacraments as a separate object of study and definition, confining them to their own distinct theological treatise. We find such an isolation neither in the early baptismal nor in the mystagogical works of Pseudo-Dionysus, Maximus the Confessor, etc., that took their place. The word sacrament was never restricted by its identification with our current seven sacraments. This word embraced the entire mystery of the salvation of the world and mankind by Christ, and in essence the entire content of the Christian faith. The fathers of the Church perceived the Eucharist both as the revelation and the fulfillment of this universal mystery, hidden from the angels, but to us the new people of God, manifested in all its abundant fullness. I am not dwelling on the explanations of the great mystagogues, because they flourished when the order and structure of the liturgical services had already reached their fundamentally finished form. Their influence, or rather the influence of their epigones, Germanus of Constantinople, Simeon the New Theologian, an influence not always happy or healthy, began to run wild into complex allegories, accessory symbolics, etc. Therefore, the witness we find in the very piety of the Church, in the perception and experience of the Eucharist among the people of the Church, is more important to us. And, according to this witness, each member of the Church knew that, from the very beginning, from the deacon's exclamation, It is time to begin the service of the Lord, to the concluding, let us depart in peace. He was taking part in a single common task, in one sacred reality, wholly identified with what the Church is revealing, manifesting and granting in the given moment, in her ascent to the heavenly table of the kingdom. The ceremony itself, I repeat, testifies to this. Thus, while completing the preparation of the gifts, the proscimity, the priest senses the gifts that have been prepared, and bows before them. At the entrance the celebrant affirms that God has vouchsafed to us, his humble and unworthy servants, even in this hour to stand before the glory of thy holy altar, and then he blesses the high place. Blessed art thou on the throne of the glory of thy kingdom. Finally, during the kiss of peace, before he completes the words, Christ is in our midst, he is and shall be, the priest again bows before the gifts lying on the altar. All this is really experienced by all who take part in the liturgy, and precisely as something real. A theological purist might ask, why do people kneel during the great entrance? After all, the gifts are still only bread and wine. They have not yet become the body and blood of Christ. But the simple worshipper would not be concerned with this question, for he knows if not by reason, then with his whole heart, that the great entrance, the offering itself, and not its allegorical representation, is accomplished, and that it is accomplished by Christ, for he is the offerer and the offered, 
the receiver and the received. One can say that the liturgy is entirely in Christ. Throughout the liturgy, Christ is with us, and we are in Christ. 4. But one may ask, does what was said about the multifaceted nature of the liturgy not mean that the change of the gifts into the body and blood of Christ happens gradually, step by step, so that it is ultimately unclear precisely when it is accomplished? This question itself, consciously or unconsciously, determines the doctrine of consecration, in other words, of a consecratory formula of how and when the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ. But this question could arise only in an era of the expiration in scholastic theology of its eschatological dimension and the essence of the Christian faith. And this places us before the question of time. The liturgy is served on earth, and this means in the time and space of this world. But if it is served on earth, it is accomplished in heaven in the new time of the new creation, in the time of the Holy Spirit. The question of time has immense significance for the Church, for, in contrast to the spiritualism widespread throughout the world, which is founded on the rejection of time, on the striving to leave it, for Christians time, like everything in creation, is of God and belongs to God. From the first words of the book of Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, to the words of the Apostle Paul, when the fullness of time had come, and finally with the affirmation of St. John the Theologian, the hour is coming and now is, John 5.25. It is not outside of time, but in it and in relation to it that the divine certification, and God saw that it was good, resounded and eternally resounds. The spiritualists are opposed in our religious world by the activists, whose spiritual horizon is limited to time, history, the solution of social problems. If the spiritualists reject time, then the activists seemingly fail to sense its ontological fallenness. They do not sense that it not only reflects the fall of the world, but is itself the reality of this fall, the triumph of death and time which reign on earth. The image of this world is passing away, and the old time is precisely an image of the passing of everything earthly down the road to an inevitable death. Meanwhile, it is precisely into this fallen time, and here both spiritualists and activists become bankrupt, into this fallen world that Christ condescended in his becoming man. In it he proclaimed that the kingdom of God which is to come, salvation from sin and death, the beginning of another life, new and eternal, had drawn near. And he not only proclaimed it, but through his voluntary suffering, crucifixion, and resurrection, he realized this victory in himself and granted it to us. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, and with him and in him the new time, descended on the church. The old time did not disappear, and outside in the world nothing changed. But to the church of Christ, which lives in the Spirit and by the Spirit, the commandment and the power to convert it into the new time was given. Behold, I make all things new. Revelation 21.5. This is not the replacement of the old with the new, not an exit into some other world. It is the same world, created through the love of God, which in the Holy Spirit we see and receive as God created it, heaven and earth, full of the glory of God. 
To abide in the new time means to abide in the Holy Spirit. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Revelation 1.10 These words of John the theologian apply, of course, to all believers who live even to a small degree for the acquisition of the Holy Spirit, of which St. Seraphim of Serov spoke as the essence and goal of life. But in the first place they apply to the source of this acquisition, to the liturgical life of the Church, and in it to the divine liturgy. For the essence of the liturgy consists in raising us up in the Holy Spirit, and in Him transfiguring the old time into the new time. It is wrong to interpret Christian worship, and particularly its summit, the sacrament of the Eucharist, in categories of the cult. For the cult is constructed not on the distinction of old and new, but sacred and profane. The cult sacralizes and is itself the fruit of sacralization. It distinguishes sacred days and periods in time, sacred places in space, sacred pieces in matter, but it does all this in the old time, for the cult is static, not dynamic, and does not know the other new time. A striking example of this is the first Christian's opposition to the temple. From time immemorial, the temple was the focus of the sacralization, and thus one of the chief accusations against Christians in the era of persecution was the accusation of atheism, of the absence of a sacred center. In the Acts of the Apostles, the first martyr, St. Stephen, answers this accusation. To the infuriated crowd that was stoning him, he declared, The Most High does not dwell in houses made with hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and earth my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? At the moment of his death, Stephen cries out, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Acts 7:48-50 and 56. St. John Chrysostom, in turn, in his second homily on the cross and the thief, says, When Christ came and suffered outside the city, he cleansed the entire earth. He made every place suitable for the prayer. Would you want to know how the entire earth, finally, was made a temple, and how every place became suitable for prayer? Not a temple made by hands, but the opening of the heavens, the world transfigured into a temple, all life into the liturgy. Such is the foundation of the Christian Lex Orundi. And if to this day we call a temple a church, in other words, an assembly or gathering, it is because it arose not from a thirst for sacralization, but from the Eucharistic experience of the church, the experience of heaven on earth. 5. If, in the light of all that has been said, we try to understand the meaning and liturgical necessity of the multifaceted nature of the liturgy, we must bear in mind that it is rooted in the Eucharist as the sacrament of remembrance. Do this in remembrance of me. Tradition rightly sees the establishment of the Eucharist at the Last Supper in these words. But the error, the harmfulness of scholastic interpretations, is that they relate the word this exclusively and only to the changing of the Eucharistic gifts into the body and blood of Christ, and by the same token isolate this establishment from the liturgy as a whole. Meanwhile, the essence of the liturgy and its multifaceted nature consists in the fact that it is all, from beginning to end, a remembrance, manifestation, epiphany. 
the salvation of the world accomplished by Christ. In the Eucharist, the commemoration is the gathering together of the entire experience of salvation, the entire fullness of the reality that is given us in the church and that constitutes our life. It is the reality of the world as God's creation, the reality of the world as saved by Christ, the reality of the new heaven and the new earth to which we ascend in the sacrament of the ascension to the kingdom of God. To commemorate means to remember, and to live in what is commemorated, to receive and to preserve it. But how can one remember it if it is not done? How can one live by what is unseen? How can one perceive it, preserve it, and, above all, preserve this experience in its fullness? Christianity is always confession, acceptance, experience. But in the fallen and shattered time of this world, this integral remembrance is impossible other than in the succession of the parts that comprise it. For this old time is horizontal, not vertical, and thus each liturgy is gathering, a restoration and an identification of the fullness of our remembrance. I have just said that while the liturgy is served on earth, it is accomplished in heaven. But most important is the fact that what is accomplished in heaven is already accomplished, already is, already has been accomplished, already given. Christ has become man, died on the cross, descended into Hades, arisen from the dead, ascended into heaven, sent down the Holy Spirit. In the liturgy, which we have been commanded to celebrate until he comes, we do not repeat and we do not represent we ascend into the mystery of salvation and new life, which has been accomplished once, but is granted to us always, now and forever, unto ages of ages. And in this heavenly, eternal, and otherworldly Eucharist, Christ does not come down to us, rather we ascend to him. The liturgy can be likened to a man going through a building, which, though familiar and beautiful, is hid in darkness, with a flashlight, part by part and in these parts identifying the entire building in its wholeness, unity, and beauty. So it is with our liturgy, which, while being accomplished on earth, is accomplished in heaven. In it, the mystery of the salvation of the world by Christ is revealed and granted to us. In it, the church fulfills herself. In it, the beginning of another life, new and eternal, triumphs. 6. And so the liturgy is accomplished in the new time through the Holy Spirit. It is entirely, from beginning to end, an epiclesis, an invocation of the Holy Spirit, who transfigures everything done in it, each solemn rite, into that which it manifests and reveals to us. In other words, in its outward appearance in the time of this world, the liturgy is a symbol and is expressed in symbols, but symbol, in the meaning of which we spoke in the beginning of this book, where we termed a symbol a reality that cannot be expressed or manifested in the categories of this world. In other words, to the senses, empirically, visibly. It is the reality that elsewhere we termed the sacramentality inherent in everything created by God, but which man has ceased to sense and recognize in this fallen world. Thus, it is impossible to explain and define the symbol. It is realized or actualized in our own reality through its transformation into that to which it points and witnesses, of which it is a symbol. But this conversion remains invisible, for it is accomplished by the Holy Spirit 
in the new time, and is certified only by faith. So also the conversion of the bread and wine into the holy body and blood of Christ is accomplished invisibly. Nothing perceptible happens. The bread remains bread, and the wine remains wine. For if it occurred palpably, then Christianity would be a magical cult, and not a religion of faith, hope, and love. Thus, any attempt to explain the conversion, to locate it in formulas and causes, is not only unnecessary, but truly harmful. I believe that it is truly thine own most pure body, and that this is truly thine own precious blood. It is as if the original faith and experience of the church, expressed in the words of this prayer, are insufficient. I believe, but I do not know, for in this world, no knowledge, other than that disclosed in faith, and no science can explain what is accomplished in the new time, in the coming of the Holy Spirit, in the conversion of life into the new life of the kingdom of God, which is in our midst. In like manner, when I say that the entire liturgy is transformation, I have in mind something very simple, that in the liturgy each of its parts, each solemn ceremony, each rite, is transformed by the Holy Spirit into that which it is, a real symbol of what it manifests. So, for example, the repeated veneration of the altar, the sensing, the kissing, the prostrations, etc., are a confession of our presence around the throne of God's glory in the heavenly sanctuary. Thus, in the liturgy, the assembly as the church is transformed into the fullness of the church of Christ, while the entrance with the gifts is transformed into the church's offering of the saving sacrifice, on behalf of all and for all. And so, everything in the liturgy is real, but it is a reality not of this world, and not in its fallen and splintered time, but in the assembled new time, when attempts at a rational explanation of the Eucharist arose in the West in the beginning of the 11th century, Berenger of Tours proposed a distinction of what is mystical, in other words, symbolic on the one hand, and what is real on the other hand. In his teaching, the sacrament is mystique non realitar. His council that condemned this doctrine, Lateran 1059, answered that it is realitar non mystique, in other words, real and therefore not mystical, not symbolic. This is the dead end into which scholasticism inevitably falls. Its essence lies in the gradual departure from the original understanding and perception of time, and together with that the gradual expiration of the eschatological essence of the church and the sacraments. Beginning with the 13th century, writes Louis Boyer, the Eucharist in the West came to be buried under untraditional formularies and interpretations. As far as the Orthodox are concerned, although they never accepted all of the Western explanations and formulas, for want of their own doctrine on the sacraments, they made the Western problematics, the Western questions, their own, which in turn affected their own interpretations and definitions of the Eucharist. 7. Now we can ask, what is the specific function of the Epiclesis, the prayer for the sending down of the Holy Spirit, which we find to be the concluding part of the anamnesis in the Orthodox liturgy? Above all, it is what the very text of the Epiclesis, which begins in both the liturgies of St. John Chrysostom and St. Basil the Great, with the words, Remembering therefore, testifies to. The organic connection of this prayer 
with the remembrance. I cited Chrysostom's text in the very beginning of this chapter, and therefore I will limit myself here to citing the parallel prayer, the epiclesis in the liturgy of St. Basil the Great. Therefore we also, O Master, remembering his, in other words Christ's, saving passion and life-creating cross, his three-day burial and resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven and sitting at the right hand and of the God and Father, and his glorious and awesome second coming, thine own of thine own we offer to thee, in behalf of all and for all. We now dare to approach thy holy altar, and offering to thee the antitype of the holy body and blood of thy Christ, we pray thee, and call upon thee, O holy of holies, that by the favor of thy goodness thy Holy Spirit may come upon us, and upon the gifts now offered. As we see, the prayer of the Epiclesis constitutes the conclusion of the remembrance. In the categories of the new time in which the Eucharist is accomplished, it unites all those things which have come to pass for us, the entire mystery of salvation accomplished by Christ, the mystery of Christ's love, which embraces the whole world and has been granted to us. The remembrance is the confession of the knowledge of this mystery, its reality, and likewise faith in it as the salvation of the world and man. Like the entire Eucharist, the remembrance is not a repetition. It is the manifestation, gift, and experience in this world, and therefore again and again of the Eucharist offered by Christ once and for all, and of our ascension to it. The Eucharist is accomplished from beginning to end over the bread and wine. Bread and wine are the food that God created from the beginning as life. You shall have them for food, Genesis 1.29. But the meaning, essence, and joy of life is not in food, but in God, in communion with Him. Man, and in Him, this world, fell away from this food. In paradise, the food of immortality, the liturgy of St. Basil the Great. Food came to reign in him, but this reign is not unto life, but unto death, disintegration and separation. And that is why Christ, when he had come into the world, called himself the bread of God, which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. John 6.33 I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. John 6.35 Christ is the bread of heaven, for this definition contains the entire content, the entire reality of our faith in him as Savior and Lord. He is life, and therefore food. He offered this life in sacrifice, on behalf of all and for all, in order that we might become communicants of his own life, the new life of the new creation, and that we might manifest him as his body. To all this the church answers, Amen. She receives all this through faith. She fulfills all this in the Eucharist through the Holy Spirit. All the rites of the liturgy are a manifestation, one after the other, of the realities of which the saving work of Christ is comprised. But I shall repeat once more, the progression here is not in the accomplishment, but in the manifestation. For what is manifested is not something new that did not exist before the manifestation. No, in Christ all is already accomplished, all is real, all is granted. In Him we have obtained access to the Father and communion in the Holy Spirit, 
and anticipation of the new life in his kingdom. And here, the epiclesis, which we find at the end of the Eucharistic prayer, is also this manifestation and this gift, and likewise the Church's acceptance of them. Send down thy Holy Spirit upon us, and upon these gifts here offered. For the invocation of the Holy Spirit is not a separate act, whose one and only object is the bread and wine. Immediately after the invocation of the Holy Spirit, the celebrant prays, and unite all of us to one another who become partakers of the one bread and cup in the communion of the Holy Spirit, St. Basil the Great, that they may be to those who partake for the purification of soul, for the remission of sins, for the communion of thy Holy Spirit, for the fulfillment of the kingdom of heaven. Furthermore, again without interruption, the prayer goes on to the intercession, of which we shall speak later. The purpose of the Eucharist lies not in the change of the bread and wine, but in our partaking of Christ, who has become our food, our life, the manifestation of the Church as the body of Christ. This is why the holy gifts themselves never became in the Orthodox East an object of special reverence, contemplation, and adoration, and likewise an object of special theological problematics. How, when, in what manner their change is accomplished, the Eucharist, and this means the changing of the holy gifts, is a mystery that cannot be revealed and explained in the categories of this world, time, essence, casualty, etc. It is revealed only to faith. I believe also that this is truly thine own most pure body, and that this is truly thine own precious blood. Nothing is explained, nothing is defined, nothing has changed in this world. But then whence comes this light? this joy that overflows the heart, this feeling of fullness and of touching the other world? We find the answer to these questions in the Epiclesis, but the answer is not rational. Built upon the laws of our one-storied logic, it is disclosed to us by the Holy Spirit. In almost every ordo of the Eucharist that has reached us, the Church prays in the text of the Epiclesis that the Eucharist will be for those who partake for the communion of the Holy Spirit and unite all of us to one another who become partakers of the one bread and cup in the communion of the Holy Spirit. And further, for the fulfillment of the kingdom of heaven. These two definitions of the purpose of the Eucharist are in essence synonyms, for both manifest the eschatological essence of the sacraments, its orientation to the kingdom of God, which is to come, but in the church is already manifested and granted. Thus, the Epiclesis concludes the anaphora, the part of the liturgy that encompasses the assembly as the church, the entrance, the proclamation of the good news of the word of God, the offering, the oblation, the thanksgiving, and the remembrance. But with the Epiclesis begins the consummation of the liturgy whose essence lies in communion, in the distribution to the faithful of the holy gifts, the body and blood of Christ.